Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We are, of course, moving through the book of Exodus. We've sort of been on a short hiatus looking at spiritual warfare and then having Terry and Adam preach, but we are back to our study of the book of Exodus, and I'm thankful for it. So Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 22 through 26, which I will simply remind you that this comes directly after uh, Israel going to Mount Sinai, where God leads them, then God descends on the mountain, and God speaks to Israel. He gives them the Ten Commandments, those most foundational commands, and then uh, Israel says, Moses, don't let God talk to us again. <laughs> you talk to him. Instead of us, we need a mediator. And so uh, Moses goes back uh, up the mountain to the mountain, and this is what God says to him. He starts to give the law of Moses, what is known as uh, maybe the Sinai covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, I'm going to mostly call it the law of Moses today. And so if you want to follow along with me, we'll We'll uh, read this together and then um, study it. Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to, to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked, from you, talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And, she, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. That is the, the, the first words of the particulars of what we call the law of Moses. Now, I am convinced by God's word that before we begin digging too deep into the particulars of the law of Moses, we first need to understand the big picture of the law of Moses. We need to understand where it fits into God's plan of redemption. We need to understand how it fit into the lives of the Israelites. And we need to understand how it fits into our lives as Christians today. I, I'm convinced of this and, and will give most of my sermon to helping you understand the overarching idea of the law of Moses and where it fits in. Because misunderstanding the law of Moses has, has been one of the most destructive misunderstandings in human history. I mean, there have been, there's been great ruin because people did not understand the proper place of the law of Moses and God's story of redemption. Now, in case you think I'm just being dramatic, he's just being a pastor trying to grab our attention. In case you think that, I just want to give you a few biblical examples of people who have misunderstood the law of Moses, the, the place that it should carry in their lives, and it caused great destruction. So here are just a few, <clears throat> uh, just examples. In the Old Testament, time and time again, God would condemn Israel for 
following the sacrificial ceremonial part of the law of Moses, but then thinking outside of that, they can live however they want. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I I want your hearts. I want your your full obedience. They misunderstood the law of Moses. And this is part of why they were exiled to to Babylon and things like that was because of their wickedness. They, They were still making sacrifices thinking, well, if we just do that, we'll still be okay with God. If we just obey that part of the law. Uh, Additionally, another huge example of this would be in Jesus' day, the religious elites, for the most part, misunderstood the law of Moses. They saw it as a means to righteousness that by obedience to the law, it, it would earn God's favor as well as earn them good standing with other people, you know, the power and prestige that it would bring. And so when Jesus came on the scene, what did they do? Did they welcome him with open arms? Here's our long-awaited Messiah. No, they, they rejected him. They mocked him. They scorned him. And ultimately, they had him arrested and crucified. God the Son was arrested and crucified because they misunderstood the proper place of the law of Moses. It didn't stop there, though. After Jesus' resurrection and the the start of the the, the New Testament church, we see things like the book of Galatians is basically dedicated to this church at Galatia where there were people who were trying to enforce the law of Moses once again as either a means of righteousness or at least a means of uh, meriting God's favor. And that's, that's what the whole book of Galatians is dedicated to. It's like, no, guys, you are misunderstanding the place of the law of Moses. And it was, it was, I mean, Paul doesn't say, oh, it's just a small theological difference. He says, who has bewitched you? <laughs> this is leading you away from grace and away from God to misunderstand the law of Moses. But on the other hand, you have the letters to the Corinthian church making the exact opposite mistake. They, they, you know, uh, trust in Jesus, but then they live entirely away from God's commands and God's laws, living without any moral restraint. They, too, misunderstood the law of Moses and caused great trouble. And so when I say that I'm concerned that we, you and I, rightly understand the law of Moses, it's because the Bible tells me that it is very easy to, for our flesh, our sinful flesh and our, our minds, you know, to misunderstand and misapply the law of Moses and cause great trouble both in our own lives and in the lives of others. And I don't think it's gotten much better today, to be quite honest with you. People's relationship with God's law, how they relate to God's law. You think about how churches are plagued oftentimes with either legalism, again, meriting God's favor, or uh, liberalism, which means you pick and choose how you want to live your life. This is how things are. This is what's going on in churches today. And, and, and I'm sure to some degree goes on in this church and even in my own heart. So we need, we need desperately to understand how to rightly relate to God's law. So where do we start? I want to start at the most foundational, most basic level 
of the law of Moses and where it fits into God's plan of redemption. And so I just want to ask you a question to see how, how comfortable you are, how well you understand it. You don't, please don't answer it out loud. Um, but here, here's the question. Were people in Moses' day saved by their obedience to the law God gave them? Did they enter into a saving relationship with God based on their obedience to the law of Moses, to the commands God will give them? That, that is an essential question for understanding the place of the law of Moses in God's plan of redemption. And so I just want to clear it up from the forefront in case there's any misunderstanding. This is number one if you're following along uh, in the, the bulletin notes, and that, that is this. The law, namely the law of Moses, was never meant to save. The law of Moses was not given that people might obey it in order to be saved. Rather, God gave the law of Moses as something to be obeyed by those who were already saved. And that salvation was by God's promises, and to be received by their faith. This is Israelites. This is people out there in, in, in the wilderness and, and, and in the future. Up until Jesus comes, the law of Moses was never their means of salvation. It was always God's gracious promises to be received by faith. And I, I want to show you this uh, by at least two proofs. Uh, that we have. This first one comes <clears throat> from our text that I just read to you a moment ago, because there we saw God gives laws about altars, and there God uh, is giving a command about sacrifices and burnt offerings, uh, offering up sheep and oxen. And so the presence of the sacrificial system proves that the law of Moses, obedience to the law of Moses, could not save them. And I see this for actually two reasons. First, the sacrificial system proved, it, it, it uh, was a witness against them that they were going to continually break the law of God. That they could not keep its perfect moral, civil, and ceremonial standards. And so there were sacrifices, and these, by the way, are continual sacrifices, daily sacrifices. Then there were these festival sacrifices. Then there's the yearly, you know, Day of Atonement sac there, There's all these sacrifices that were meant to cover their sin because they could not keep the law of God. Therefore, they had no hope of obeying unto, unto salvation. But I would even say this. The fact that their offerings, their sacrifices, which the, the whole idea behind a, the sacrifices was not that God was hungry and needed to, to us to burn him an oxen so that he could eat. It was a substitute for, for the death that they deserve because of their sin against God. And so you, you got to kind of do some math there. You say, okay, I'm a human made in the likeness and image of God, a moral being, and, a, and an oxen is going to take my place? A sheep is going to take my place? I mean, the Israelites could see that an oxen was not a good enough substitute for them as a human made in the image of God, a moral being. A sheep was not a good enough substitute. And what that means is 
the sacrificial system pointed to a, a, another greater sacrifice that, that they needed. They needed something outside of themselves, not their ability to obey the law of Moses that God gave them. So that's, that's one proof. But here's the next one I want to give you that I think is really helpful. Again, it's up, up there on the screen. And that is the superiority of promise. In the Mosaic Covenant, the law of Moses, you have commands, you have laws, you have ordinances that God gives them. But what I'm telling you is it was never meant to save them because of the superiority, the greaterness of God's promises over and above God's laws. And so I'm not going to go through each and every one of these uh, with you guys, but I have them up there on the screen uh, that I'll read. Adam and Eve, they're, they're in the garden, right? God makes them. Everything was very good. They have no sin. Then Satan comes, tempts them. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God tells them not to eat. And that is the fall. They have broken God's commands. They now deserve, have earned death, separation from God. But we know that God gives a promise. He's actually speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, you know, in the hearing of Adam and Eve. They're all there. Speaking to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3.15, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That he, that offspring of the woman, is a direct, you could draw a direct line from that he to Jesus. The offspring of the woman, he will bruise your head. That's a mortal wound, but you shall bruise his heel. And so God, at that moment, right after sin, gives the promise of a savior, one who would deal with Satan in this sin problem that he introduced into humanity. And then we even see in Genesis 3.21, that same chapter, uh, they, they, after they sinned, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Before that, they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and they were ashamed. And so it's kind of tying that nakedness uh, with their sin. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves, which was an inadequate man's attempt to, to cover their own sin. But we see in Genesis 3.21... And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God says, okay, those fig leaves aren't going to do, but here I will cover you with these animal skins. What does it take to get animal skins? We're not talking about snakes here. Animals don't shed their skin. That means you have to kill, sacrifice this animal. And so God made a sacrifice and God covered them, covered their shame, covered their sin with these animal skins. And so we see the seeds of the gospel right there, right after Adam and Eve sinned. There, there's this promise, I will send a Savior to cover this sin. But until then, I will cover you with this, this animal skin. Now, 
this got even more clear when we come to Abraham. Again, in the book of Genesis, it gets even more clear, uh, this promise. We see this in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and those are just the times that the covenant is given to Abraham, what we know now as the Abrahamic covenant, but it was also passed on to his sons Isaac and Jacob. This promise uh, was that God would make a great nation of Abraham, that God would bless them, that God would give them a land, and that through him, through Abraham and through his offspring, God would bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. And so God was saying, hey, I, that Savior that I, I told Adam and Eve about, he's coming through you. That's where the blessing is coming from. And Galatians even says, God preached the gospel beforehand when he said, uh, uh, through you I'll bless all the families of the earth. And so this was the gospel being preached. And so what we see though, and you see this connection, Genesis uh, 15, 6, this is one of the times God is <clears throat> clarifying his promises. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that is one of the most significant verses in the entire Old Testament. I don't, even, I don't know if you've heard it before. Genesis 15, 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is when Abraham entered into a saving relationship with God. The, the, at that moment, Abraham was counted as righteous, sinless, spotless before God. How did he do it? He believed the promise of God. God graciously gave a promise of salvation, and Abraham believed and he received that salvation by faith. And now, we know for certain that this is what's going on because over and over again uh, in the New Testament, Paul, at least four times that I counted, he refers back to this moment and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. And so I, I kind of want to show you this. I, I have it here. And so this will just be a, a helpful way of understanding what's going on and, and how this was not just for Abraham, but for all those who came after him. Romans 4, verses 3 through 5, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we just saw in Genesis 15. Now the one who works, and that's referring to works of the law, obedience to the law, relying on the law. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians 6, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's Genesis 15, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And, and being the sons of Abraham means they're the heirs of this promise, the recipients of this promise given to Abraham. And so you have Abraham is given the promise, he believes, and all those who come after him, they, they believe and they're, they're saved through this. 
But you say, okay, but that was before the law of Moses was given. It was some 600 years before. It was 430 years since the last time God gave this promise to Jacob. But over 600 years uh, kind of passed by here. But then God gives the law of Moses. Maybe then God changed things. Maybe then salvation was no longer received by believing in God's promises. But maybe salvation was by obeying God's law. Maybe that's what happened. And this again is what many people believe. Maybe it changed when the law of Moses was given. Maybe God kind of took away that promise of salvation by faith. But again, according to Paul, the answer is a big resounding no. He says this in Galatians uh, 3, 15 to 18. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, after the last time God repeated it to Jacob, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It doesn't get any more clear than that. He's saying when the, when the Mosaic law came, the law of Moses came, it did not annul, it did not negate, it did not abrogate the, the old, co- uh, sorry, the Abrahamic covenant. It did not make God's promises void at that point. It did not change the way of salvation. Yes, the law of Moses was given, but it did not change the promise that had been given over 400 years earlier. That promise still stood. I'm going to send a Savior, believe, and it will be counted to you as righteousness. So please understand, all through Israel's history, from Sinai on, after the giving of the law of Moses, salvation was not by works. It was not by obedience to the law of Moses because it was promise. God was saving people by grace, not through merit, not through their earning it, by believing in his promises that he would send a savior. There never has been another means of salvation. Never has. There's only been one person who you could say was righteous entirely according to the law, and that was Jesus. He fulfilled the whole law. He kept the, the letter of the law perfectly. No one else has ever kept it, and therefore no one else has ever been saved <clears throat> Excuse me, by obedience to the law of Moses. I, I hope that you can just like store that in your mind. Because even as you read the Bible, there will be times that you might say, hmm, that kind of sounds like they're saved only if they obey the law of Moses. But here's what we need to understand, and this is things that we will get into uh, shortly. The law of Moses did not save them, but it was absolutely necessary for those who were saved to obey. 
if they were to disregard, to dishonor, to disobey the law of Moses, they were showing, they were proving that they had not truly believed, that they had not truly been made righteous, that they had not truly been saved. Does that make sense? So when, it, when, when the Bible says, you know, you, you're condemned by this or, or you're saved by this, what it's saying is your obedience or disobedience is proving whether or not you have entered into that salvation by grace through faith. And so that is the law of Moses. Its place in the, the story of redemption is not that God changed the means of salvation. The means of salvation was always the same. It never was meant to save. It was rather what saved people were to obey. So you say, well, okay, if it didn't save them, then why did they need to obey the law of Moses? Why does God bother giving this huge law of Moses? By the way, uh, the law of Moses starts here in Exodus 20, and then it continues on for some four chapters of just like straight laws, but then it actually in some ways continues in as it teaches about the priest garments and what the tabernacle is to look like. Then it actually continues into the next book of the Bible, Leviticus, and then Numbers, and then Deuteronomy repeats it. Like, this is a very big part of the Bible, this law of Moses. It's not a periphery issue, um, something that just like a small little blip that you could miss. It is a huge part of the Bible. So why does God bother to give the law of Moses if it wasn't meant to save them. Here's, here's what we need to understand. The purpose of the law of Moses. Number two, the law, oop, there we go. Number two, the law was a guardian for Israel. A guardian. The law of Moses was not meant to save them, but it was meant to be a guardian for Israel. I keep emphasizing that word guardian because it's a, you need to understand that word guardian uh, Galatians has it right there. It's where I get the word from. Galatians 3, 23 to 24. Now before faith came, that is the object of our faith, Jesus, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, um, imprisoned until the coming faith, Jesus, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul's saying he's an Israelite. The law for us as Israelites was our guardian until Christ came. You say, okay, a guardian, like a, a bodyguard? No, that's, that's not the meaning of this word. It's a, it's a very uh, specific word that Paul used. It's only used three times in the whole uh, Bible, and two times are right here in Galatians chapter 3. Um, but it was a common term, this was a commonly used term in Greek and Roman culture, and so what we need to understand is it wasn't just a term, it was a title. Like you could have a capital G almost. It, a, it was a guardian was a particular person who did a particular role. So in, in Greek and Roman culture, a child with wealthy parents would be assigned something called a guardian. Usually this was maybe like the most trusted servant of the family, the most respected servant of the family. And it would be their job to supervise, train up, and discipline the child. They were to teach that child how to have relationships with other people, how to live with morals and virtues. That was the role of a guardian. A guardian was a particular person who watched over that child 
all day long. Literally, they were not allowed to leave the house without their guardian. This is what Paul is saying the law of Moses was for Israel. It was an assigned guardian to teach, to train, to supervise, to discipline Israel. This is the law of Moses. It wasn't meant to save them, but it was a guardian for them. You say, well, what is this guardian supposed to look like? Well, first, it was to guard their relationship with God. I might have lost. Nope, there we go. The law was given to guard their relationship with God. Now, you need to think about this. Israel have been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years at this point. They, they haven't been living in some, some you know, uh, godly Mecca that loves the one true God. They've been living in an exceedingly pagan world with polytheism and, and, and idol worship, all these things. And so they would have had little to no idea how to relate to the one true God. And so the law of Moses was given as their guardian to teach them and to train them how to have a relationship with God. This doesn't make them enter into a relationship with God, right? That's faith in God's promises. But if they are now in that covenant relationship with God, here is how things were to work. Now, I'll just give you one example. It's up there on the screen. This is from our text in Exodus. Exodus 20, 23, God says this. This is the very first uh, command of the law he gives. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. So, I mean, that's basically a rehashing of the first and second of the Ten Commandments, by the way. But God is saying to them, Okay, you've entered into a relationship with me. If you've entered into a relationship with me by faith, it's got to be exclusive. D- don't, don't bring in other gods beside me. You see that? Uh, make, not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. God, he, God's saying, don't, don't like try to worship me, have a relationship with me, but also bow down to other gods, worship and serve them as well. Our relationship, if it's going to work and if it's going to go well, if we're going to thrive, it's got to be exclusive. Now, it kind of sounds like another relationship, doesn't it? Another covenant relationship. You've got the covenant of marriage, Right? And it's all well and good to to have the ceremony, exchange the rings, maybe even exchange some vows. Like you are in at that moment, right? That's how you enter into marriage. Just like we enter into uh, salvation by trusting God's promises, that's that's the marriage. You're, You're in it. But I'll tell you, as a husband, it's a good idea to have some additional rules to do relationship. Like, if you just say, okay, we're married, so we're in, we're good, I don't care, you know, I'm just going to still do what I want, it's not going to go well. Now, I can tell you, even that very first command God gives, don't make gods of silver to be with me, nor gods of gold, that's a pretty good principle for your marriage. Like, it should be exclusive. That is going to help your marriage relationship go much better if it's exclusive. Uh, but I mean, you think about like the ground rules that you kind of lay. Uh, I'm the type that needs lots of rules. <laughs> like, don't leave your plate on the table. Like it will, you know, not make things go well. Don't leave your laundry just laying around. You know, like I need these rules not to enter into the relationship. I'm already married to Hallie. You're stuck with me. 
But to keep our relationship good, we need these rules. We need these laws. And that's what it was for Israel. It was to help them have this good relationship with God, to maintain the harmony of their relationship with God. And because they were living in a pagan land and because they did not yet have the Holy Spirit, they needed the law to be their ever-present guardian. Okay, that's one purpose. Another purpose, and there's more, by the way, but I I just want to give you a few. It was to guard God's reputation. We've talked about this uh, at length um, a few I don't know, it's probably been a couple months ago now, but in chapter 19, specifically verse 6, they were God's treasured possession. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And the idea behind that was, is God was going to bless them and God was going to train them and they would be ambassadors or mediators to the rest of the world of God's grace. They were to uh, help the rest of the world come into a saving relationship with God and have that relationship with God. And so they were representing God in a very real way. Uh, We see what Galatians uh, 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. They needed the law because they represented God, yet they were very sinful people. They had been all too influenced by their time in Egypt. They were all too influenced by the the, the sinful flesh that they carried around, their sin nature. And so because of their transgressions, God adds the law. And I would say one of the main reasons he did that was to guard his reputation. Again, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but this passage we read today, you look at these laws and each of these, you can see how it would guard God's reputation. Don't make gods of silver to be with me. If you're bowing down to other gods, what's it say about the one true God? He's not enough. I need these other gods to, to satisfy me. I need these other gods to protect me. I need, and so if they're doing that, the other nations are saying, okay, they have Yahweh God. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. But now they're also bowing down to Baal and they're bowing down to, to all these other gods. They would say, well, I guess God, Yahweh God was not enough. It would hurt his reputation. Again, some of these are more difficult. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. He says, if you will make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And so, honestly, scholars and commentaries uh, have have trouble nailing down why this command was so important that the the altar not be only be made of earth and if they use stones they not hew they not shape those stones and it's very likely what's going on here is that the the other religions of the world that they were bowing down to idols on very or making sacrifices to idols on very ornate altars And I think that because he says, uh, you profane it, I underlined that, you profane it, you make it common, you make me like every other God if you do this. But again, it's hard to know because later they will have a very ornate uh, altar to sacrifice to God. But that seems to be the sense there, the way you worship me will be different than the way the world worships their gods. Then verse 26, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. 
what God is saying here is, you may not know this, but this is a reality. Much of pagan idol worship included lewd sexual acts. That, that was part of it. It's convenient that they believed that they were pleasing these gods by doing these lewd sexual acts. And so again, God is saying, you're not going to defile the worship of me by impurity. You're not going to bring sin in and say that that's worship of me. That would make a mockery of me. And so God gives the law to guard his reputation. If they obey the law, it would show the glory of God. God would bless them and that would show the glory of God. But I want to tell you, because of the law, even their disobedience would be an opportunity for God to guard his own reputation. I don't, I don't have a, a slide of this one, but I'll just tell you, uh, part of God's, th- this law of Moses was the blessings for obedience, but the curses for disobedience. Within the law, they were, they were guaranteed that if you, you obey, you will receive these blessings from God. If you disobey, then you can expect famine and pestilence. You can expect uh, the, the, the uh, enemies to overtake you. You can expect to be deported, exiled. And that's exactly what happened. They disobey God's law and they are deported. But, but this is, this is uh, kind of what's going on. Deuteronomy 29, uh, verse 25, it's talking about when this happens, then people will say it is because they have abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Even their disobedience, because of God's discipline, according to the law of Moses, would show, would, would uphold, rather, God's reputation. I, I, I am a merciful, I'm a gracious God, yes, but I am not a God who will allow continual, unrepentant, unrestrained sin, and I will discipline it. And it was showing this God, again, is different than the world. He is holy. He is righteous altogether. And the law was an opportunity to uphold God's own reputation, God's name, you might say. I'll give you one last area that I, I want to make sure we understand. This is kind of looking back to number one, but um, this, is, this is what we have. The law of Moses was given to guard against self-righteousness. The law was not given to make Israel, Israel feel good about themselves, but to condemn them. The law of Moses was so strict. The law of Moses was so broad in the sense that it covered every area of life, both moral and civil and ceremonial, all these areas. And, and the, the standard was so high that there is no way any fallen sinful human being could keep the law perfectly. And, and therefore, it was to condemn them. It was to destroy any self-righteous thoughts that like, I am so good that God has to love me. I see this in Galatians uh, 3, 23 and 24. It says, Now before faith came, that is Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was a guardian so that their salvation 
might be by faith rather than by works. Because if they're going for works, the law would continually condemn them over and over, showing them that they could not keep God's righteous, holy standards. And again, the ceremonial laws, just the the fact that they had to make sacrifices for sins should keep them from self-righteousness. They should see that they need something outside themselves, an alien salvation, you might say, an alien righteousness. You say, it's supposed to guard them from self-righteousness, but when Jesus came, they were self-righteous. They, they, they were making a righteousness of their own, Paul says in, in Romans. I, I know. And, and that's, that's kind of like what's so sad about it, is the law became not a means of, of keeping a good relationship with God. It became a means of, of uh, trying to earn their, this relationship with God. It became their, their self-righteousness, but that was never how it was supposed to be. The law of Moses was meant to guard against self-righteousness. Now, this begs the question, though. Are we still to live imprisoned under the law of Moses? Are we still to obey every command of the Mosaic law? So we're, we're transitioning here. This is biblical theology, by the way. This is looking at, at how it unfolds throughout Scripture. God's promise, the, the salvation, the law is given. Are we still to obey the law of Moses? Galatians 3.25 says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, so until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, that is Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no, no longer under this, this imprisonment of the law, watching our every move. We no longer need a babysitter, you could say. We've grown up. Well, what changed? Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ ascended to heaven, and then what happened? Anyone? What's the next thing that happened? The day of Pentecost. He sent his Holy Spirit to indwell believers. You see that on the screen, Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, that's the law of Moses, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. You get that? Like, what has changed is that because the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence inside of us, He now is our guardian, if you will. He now is our teacher and our trainer and our disciplinarian. We have uh, the, the, the law written, or the law inside of us no longer is it just this written code, the new way of the Spirit. So this is for us. We, we don't go to the law of Moses to say, okay, I see that law, now I need to do that. You guys, we're going to have to change a lot of things if we're going to obey the law of Moses. Uh, so, but no longer under a garden. We are released from the law. Christ has freed us from that and given us the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean the law of Moses has no value for us? I think that's another legitimate question. Does it have no value for us? Should we just go ahead and tear it out of our Bibles? Why are we bothering to study it right now, like in, in, in the coming months? Why, why are we studying the law of Moses? Well, I'll, I'll give you just a couple reasons. It's God's law, 
and it's God's word. <laughs> Therefore, it is worth studying. Uh, you, you think about this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, not just the New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word, work, rather. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And that includes the Old Testament. That includes the law of Moses. So there is still great benefit, Christian. There is still great benefit in reading, studying, meditating on the law of Moses. So if it can't save us and if we aren't supposed to obey it, what, how, how should we think of it in our lives? This is number three. The law is a guide for Christians. It, it guides us in the right way. It is, it is profitable, again, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, even if we don't have to obey each letter of this written code that God has given. So I just want to give you uh, a few ways, really quickly, I'm, I'm tying this together, tying it up, a few ways that we uh, now have the uh, law of Moses as a guide for us as Christians. First, it guides us in how to relate to God's commands. Remember, one of the most horrible things in the world is that people have misunderstood the law of Moses and, and caused great destruction. That's how, why Israel was deported. That's why Jesus was murdered. That's why the Galatian church and the Corinthian church and all this trouble because they misunderstood the law. But we should learn how to relate to God's law, how to re relate to his commands. Galatians 2, 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if, if you're trying to impress God by your obedience to his commands, Christian, just give it up. By works of the law, you will never be justified in God's sight. It will only be by the shed blood, death and resurrection, his bearing of our sin, his righteous life, this great exchange, he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. That is the only way that we will be justified before God. But, just as it was true with Israel, that doesn't mean you cast off all restraint. That doesn't mean you don't obey God's commands. James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, the definition of being a Christian is that you have been made alive in Christ. You have been born again. But James says, if you don't have works, if you're not seeking, pursuing to obey God Almighty, then that faith is dead. You, you've not been made alive. And so that, we need to understand this. This is, again, it's just so important that we understand how to relate to God's commands, Old Testament, New Testament, all of them. They will not save us. In fact, the only command that will save you is repent and believe. That's it. <laughs> like that's, that's the only obedience to a command that will save you is repent and believe. But once you've come into that relationship, obedience, pursuing it, is a part of what that new life causes in you. So it teaches us how to do that in the law of Moses because it was a similar construct. They uh, believed and were made righteous, but then they obeyed 
God's law out of that righteousness. Secondly, it will teach us how to relate with God. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew 22, uh, 36 to 38. Uh, A man says, teacher to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? So he's talking about the law of Moses. And he said to him, you shall, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What, What that means is the law of Moses, again, is meant to teach us how to love and relate to God with all of our lives, all of our, our mind and our strength and our soul, we need to love God. We need to worship God. We need to have this relationship with God. And the law of Moses helps us to do that. Again, thinking back on our text, we may not be tempted to make idols of silver or gold today. Like that's just not one of my big stumbling uh, points in my life is to, to make an idol out of, of silver and gold and and worship it, but are we not prone to make idols of our own out of the things of this world, out of, out of uh, money, out of pleasure, out of uh, power, out of prestige, out of what people think? Of? I mean, we bow down to all these gods, and we need to carry that principle over so that our relationship with God can be good, that our relationship with God can be exclusive. Again, you think about the whole not there being stairs on the altars, lest your nakedness be exposed— we too should not mix our worship of God with, with immorality, with impurity. We, we make ourselves holy as he is holy. Like that's what worshiping God is. We worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, there's a real way to do it. Now, that's, that's our relationship with God. It can help us to do that. But it can also, thirdly, teach us, guide us in how to relate with one another. The law of Moses is filled with commands about how they should treat their business interactions, about how they should treat those who work for them, how they should treat their neighbors, how they should treat all the the poor, how they should treat the widows, how they should, I mean, like there's tons of laws about how they should treat other people. And again, while we may not have to say, okay, I won't, uh, harvest all of my fields so that the poor people can come glean like i don't i actually kind of do have a field but we don't have anything to harvest um like but this is what we have matthew 22 39 to 40 this is coming off of that love love the lord your god thing the second is like it the second great commandment you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments love for god and love for neighbor depend all the law and prophets the law of moses will guide you, it will teach you, it will train you to better love your neighbor in practical ways. That is a huge benefit of the law. Finally, the law can guide us in seeing a clear picture of Christ and what he accomplished. By looking back to the Old Testament, it will help us to understand what happened in the New Testament. I mean, we have this, a few things here that I can think of. Um, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and that, that's mind-blowing in and of itself when you read the law of, of like all these things that would be so difficult to, to continually and consistently do. Jesus did it all perfectly. That, that's a beautiful thing. But not only that, 
Jesus is the point of the law. He's what the law was pointing to, most specifically the ceremonial laws, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices. Because Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus entered into that heavenly temple as a sacrifice before God. Jesus became a man that he might die for us and be our substitute in a way that animals could never do. And I'll tell you, reading through the sacrificial system, reading through, thinking through, meditating on it, will help you to better understand what Jesus did on the cross. He will help you to understand not only the pain that he was feeling, but the punishment that he endured. It will help you understand how God was responding, how it was pleasing in God's sight, and how you are not only having that, that uh, blood cover your sins, it's, it's taking them away, making you white as snow, as we sung about this morning. And so to study the law of Moses isn't to take your eyes off of Jesus. It will actually help you see him more clearly. And that is what we are going to do as we continue through this law of Moses. This, I believe, is a, a fitting time to enter into the Lord's Supper because Jesus was that, that final sacrifice. Once and for all, he shed his blood. His body was broken. And in doing that, he was making a new covenant. Well, what happened in the new covenant? Well, not only did Jesus accomplish the salvation, but he sent his Holy Spirit, releasing us from the law and giving us a far better guide, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So I'm going to pray right now, but I want to invite you to, to in your seats, pray to God as well and, and just may, maybe thank him for the love that drove Jesus to the cross in light of our sinfulness. Thank, thank him for the promise that we have in Jesus. Thank him that we don't have to work for our salvation, that, but we get to receive it by grace through faith. And thank him for the law of Moses, that you can be trained by it. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the law of Moses. It's probably uh, a bit intimidating for some of us, confusing for some of us. Some of us maybe find it or found it, hopefully, irrelevant before today. But we, we thank you that, that you've helped us today to see how important the law of Moses is. That while it was not a means of salvation, it was still teaching Israel how to have a relationship with you. How to uphold your reputation and how to cling to you as their only possible means of salvation. And Lord, we want those same things to happen in our lives, God. We want to have a better relationship with you uh, a month from now, a year from now, than we do today. And so we pray that you would do that as we study the law of Moses. And I pray, God, even today, would you rid us of any self-righteousness, of any... Uh, pride in ourselves and our own ability to please you, knowing that that's what the law was given to show that we cannot please you apart from Christ. God, we are thankful for your promises. We believe them by faith, and from that, we want to obey you. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take the time you need.